It's my pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Indu Subaya. Dr. Subaya is co-founder of Health 2.0 User-Generated Healthcare, a first-of-its-kind forum showcasing digital media, web, and mobile technologies. She is also director of the Health 2.0 Developer Challenge, an innovation catalyst for the healthcare technology community. She has been an entrepreneur in residence at Physic Ventures. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Indu Subaya. We're honored to be here today to discuss online health. I just want to say that it's such an exciting time right now in healthcare and health innovation for many reasons, but I think of three in particular. One, the incredible consumer and patient engagement that we've seen just from, from the public, from, from individuals taking charge of their own care. For the last three years, the, the level of innovation in health IT tools using lightweight software iPhone, mobile apps, et cetera, that's exploded. And the third, we're seeing people really challenge the conventional healthcare delivery structure, and we're seeing real reform. All of this coupled with the maelstrom of, of, of things going on in DC with the passage of the High Tech Act, High Tech Act and an incredible amount of money being put into the space now. So if you think about it from the patient engagement perspective, the healthcare innovation technology perspective and the delivery reform perspective, I have three esteemed panelists today. They each almost represent one of those categories, but wear many, many different hats, and I'd love to introduce them to you. Uh, so I'll start with Dr. Thomas Lee on my immediate left. Tom was a founder of the very groundbreaking company, Hippocrates, providing medical software on mobile platforms to physicians' office, but mo physicians offices, but most recently is founder and CEO of One Medical Group, a practice that uses innovative information technology to both change the way care is delivered and to lower costs. Uh, Tom has also served as uh, chief medical officer and editor-in-chief um, at Hippocrates, where he designed those, those applications and led to the prevention of, of medical errors. So welcome, Tom. Dr. Francis Kong is both a physician and an entrepreneur, and Francis started a company called MedSimple. And MedSimple, uh, he'll be talking more about that today as we go into how, how that works, but he has been very involved with business strategy development, healthcare information technology. He's consulted to several medical groups around the country. Uh, he's also founded two additional companies, one focused on a game uh, that's played on cards to teach people how to learn about infectious diseases called Healing Blade, uh, and, where he also, and he's also very involved in medical education. So welcome, Francis. And last but not least, uh, Dave DePronkart, who goes by, often, many of us know him on the, in the Twitter sphere as ePatient Dave. Dave is a leading spokesperson for the ePatient movement. I'll be asking him what that means as we go through our conversation today. Uh, he's also a co-chair of the Society for Participatory Medicine, another theme we'll address. Dave was diagnosed, and he'll be telling you more about this in his personal story, with stage four kidney cancer in 2007 and has since been a leading patient advocate, uh, a speaker, a, a leader in this field. He's beaten it. it it's now in, in remission, so that's really wonderful. And he also has a book that he's authored. Uh, do you have a copy with you? 
did not bring one on stage. Okay, uh, called Last Thing and Eat Like a Pig, How an Empowered Patient Beats Stage 4 Cancer and What Healthcare Can Learn From It. So thank you all for being here today. So the topic of today's panel, uh, can we trust online healthcare? You know, when I thought about that in the description, I thought that's a, that's a really fascinating question for a number of reasons. But first, I really want to ask my panelists to each give me briefly their sense of what online healthcare is today. We've all, we all probably bring different associations to the term, you know, from the early days of when there was WebMD for the first time uh, to now, uh, what does it really mean? And so uh, why don't we start with you, Dave, um, and tell us a little bit about what online healthcare means to you. Uh, I think the best way to describe that is from my own experience. You know, when I was diagnosed out of nowhere, I had no symptoms, but it just the shoulder x-ray just showed that I had a tumor in my lung out of nowhere, which they traced down to be kidney cancer that had spread everywhere. And so first thing I learned, uh, yes, I looked at WebMD. I found out that the odds of survival were close to nothing. Uh, I, but then my doctor referred me to a patient community of all amazing things, this acor.org, when it turns out they have the most up-to-date information on treatment options about kidney cancer for a number of reasons. Now, it's a rapidly changing field, and the FDA approval process for new information takes far longer than the rate at which the latest information changes. So I got good information from them. That was the same information that my hospital was going to give me, but I, I got that. Uh, there are... Uh, there are people sharing information in many different ways. Uh, there are, of course, the health management tools that you've mentioned. Uh, I looked at my hospital's uh, medical record, my own medical record on my hospital's website, uh, read my radiology reports. Uh, my wife's a veterinarian. She helped me interpret the lab results and things like that. So there's, a, there's an enormous range. And, and you're also a health blogger. I, I am now. I wasn't at the time. Right. No, I'm a classic example of somebody who didn't much care anything about health care or how the system worked until I had my now I care moment. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. So online health care, uh, just to sort of encapsulate, and we'll come back to this, of course, but touched on how you dealt with your doctor, how you were able to look at your records, how you communicated about your own health to others. So yes, absolutely. Yes. So, Francis, what do you think of when you think of online health? What does it encompass, and what about it from your own perspective? Well, um, the way I see it is pretty much healthcare, at least before I go into online, healthcare itself is more of a conceptual thing. Um, it comes from inside what a person believes it should be, their responsibility, their role in it, um, how they want to work with their physicians, and also the physician's belief in what their role is. So, before we go into online, that's kind of how it, it stems from. The online part of it are the tools. They're now available for you to extend that type of motif. So if you're more passive, those tools will be less effective. If you're much more active, those tools become much more powerful. So nowadays, you can do almost anything you want. You can even take vitals remotely, and that's amazingly powerful. You can have these little capsules where you can have a face-to-face -face interaction with a physician several thousand miles away. They take your pulse, it relays it back to them. It's really powerful, but once again, it all comes down to how much you want to push yourself in, into the, the, the envelope of that online technology. Mm -hmm. and, and Tom, you're actually building a brick-and-mortar chain of practices, uh, but online healthcare is a component of them. So, so how do you see the, the definition of the term and, and the integration with care delivery overall? 
it's hard to elaborate. You know, online healthcare, it's healthcare online. But you know, uh, to kind of construct a, a framework, the way I look at the online medium uh, is it's a combination of three things. It's uh, the digital distribution of information, which is what the internet has given us, right? It's a pliable media form that you can take that information and make it your own and move it around. And then it's also contextual to other people, right? You can quickly share and now have a contextual element to that information. So the power of online, and frankly, information technology is really what we're talking about, is that it's taking healthcare powered with this new media information form, and everybody knows healthcare is an information-intensive service industry, so you take those two together and you have a really amazing subset of uh, opportunities that can happen to enable people to take care of their health. The challenge is the business models really don't facilitate it. We're used to entrenched physical entities because that's the way doctors get paid and that's the way we're used to getting our health care. So there's a paradigm shift. What we've done is we've built physical entities that are much more patient-centered in nature, but we've wired it with the power of the information technology platform and then decoupled ourselves from the business model to enable patients to get the power of online healthcare through our physical infrastructure, but in a very different way. So it's, it's contextual with, with the physical and the online. So, so Dave, you had a, a really interesting experience uh, firsthand with online care. You know, you were first emailing with your doctor, mm -hmm. uh, but somewhere around 2009, we had uh, the emergence of Google Health and Microsoft Health Vault, two large technology players developing their first platforms for personal health records. And I'd love for you to take us through the story of, of your experience just as a patient at that time uh, and, and, and take us to, through that sort of early 2009 story a little bit. Well, so this was long after my illness. I, uh, although my odds were poor, I got a treatment that usually doesn't work, and it did. So I was diagnosed in January of 07, and my treatment ended in July, and I'm like, all my weight came back, I'm like completely back to normal. So I, as I go around speaking sometimes, I make a point of saying that nothing I say about patient empowerment indicates in any way that I don't like doctors. Doctors save my life. Right? So, anyway, in 2008, I learned about this e-patient movement where the E stands for empowered, engaged, equipped, enabled, educated. E-patients are patients who are actively involved rather than just sitting back and being passive recipi recipients of care. And being a data geek in my day job, like I was the administrator for the Salesforce.com marketing system, uh, I was really interested in what can be done with data that's put to good use. So I heard about Google Health and Health Vault, and at first I thought, right, like I'm gonna give these guys my personal information. But then I had this epiphany, because I realized, when the first time I was discharged from the hospital, I was given a very complex medication grid with all the different, I think, seven medications, take this three times a day with meals, take this twice a day without meals, and a highly paid nurse had drawn this out with a ruler and a pencil. And in the software business, this was like dumb. I mean, you just put in your prescriptions and it would print a grid, right? Or, I mean, if we want to get really modern, the computer can just look at your prescription records and do it automatically. But it didn't exist at my hospital. So then I visited the Google Health booth at a trade show in Palm Springs in February of 09, where I was speaking. And I said, okay, so like, if I 
give you guys my sacred data. What can I do that I can't do now? They just happened to pull up this tool that would take your prescriptions and print a schedule grid. And I thought, wow, you know, if we can get the data out of the hospitals, then Silicon Valley innovators can go nuts and create value. People like these two, right? And the so I went home and I wrote on my blog, I'm going to do this, and yeah, this is an earthquake, but here's why. I believe in the power of innovation. I poked the button and what came across was garbage. So you poked the button to get your data to move my data Beth Israel Hospital yes. into Google Health. Correct. Okay, and what, and what so, came out? So what came across was garbage. The first thing that popped up was a false medication warning. Your low potassium level makes it dangerous for you to be taking your blood pressure medication. Well, first I thought, I mean, because of course there couldn't be any bad information in the system. <laughs> At first I thought, they didn't tell me about my low potassium level. But then I figured out that was when I was hospitalized. And then I noticed that in the conditions they sent over, there were a whole bunch of things I used to have and it turns out they'd sent over my entire history as if it was all current. Mm -hmm. And I thought, holy cow, what's going on here? I mean, these are smart people, right? How could I be getting bad data across? We eventually figured out that what happened was they hadn't sent my clinical records, they'd sent my insurance billing codes. Mm -hmm. And it turns out there are many reasons why that's bad. And to make a long story short, that came to a screeching halt after I wrote about it on my blog. because. Mm -hmm. And I, and I had no idea, to, to some extent, this is, this is the power of social media, because I was anything but an expert in any of this, but I had a voice, and other people noticed it. The Boston Globe called and said, we'd like to write about this. I said, what? And then a week and a half later, it was on the front page of the Boston Globe. Washington got wind of it, because it, unbeknownst to me, there was a move afoot to take all of our insurance records and load those into these new electronic medical record systems, and it would have been chaos, mm -hmm. right? So, so, so Tom, you know, you're really, uh, Tom has been very masterful. Let, in, let me just toss oh, in one thing. So when people ask, can we trust online health information, I wonder, can we trust the information that's in the hospital system? <laughs> because the, to a large extent, they don't understand data quality issues that are routine in the rest of IT. So that it's not even just an online specific issue of trusting medical data. It, it starts in the uh, offline Now that you mention world. it, sure. Okay. Yeah. So, so Tom, you've, Tom, Tom does a lot of great things well, uh, but one of the things you do is you design processes really intelligently. Mm -hmm. And when you listen to Dave's story, I bet you're thinking, well, here's sort of the different steps and flaws in the system that went wrong. You had a chance to really design a healthcare delivery clinic system from scratch almost. Um, how have you approached this idea of data quality, data access by patients, um, and, and meaningful yeah. access to data? Yeah. I think that's a key point. I mean, I think this illustrates the problem of having digital access to data. You know, it's garbage in, garbage out. So the reality of today's healthcare data in paper and electronic form is it's kind of muddy data. It's, it's imperfect. The standards of what's normal and abnormal are all over the map. And so uh, what we even in our practice focus on is clean data collection, right? And in the context of care and the appropriate transactions, which sounds simple, it's a lot more complicated. You know, what data is relevant or important to capture by whom, in what context, and how is that data going to be used? So the power of digital data is extremely um, 
extensible once you capture it in the right form. But the problem is most people don't think about the output. They think about, wow, it'd be great to capture all this data. So when you say, why, do, why, do, why does the, those data systems exist and why are they like that? Well, it's just because people haven't thoughtfully designed systems to capture data as a system property. So our physical entity, we've designed everything thoughtfully. We currently don't capture everything digitally. We started primarily as you know, text-based practice, but as we've gotten more sophisticated and more aware of what processes we can design and what data would be great to capture, we've captured it in the right context in the transactional element. So that's kind of how we've used it, and it allows us to use the data much more effectively for automation and you know, self-learning and all the other things that would be great. But it's unfortunately a flaw of the system in the organizational, the brick and mortar ar ar you know, architecture. So it's either self-enter data or, you know, clean data, but it's hard to find. And Tom, so Tom has seven clinics in uh, New York area and the Bay Area, and uh, so this is a growing operation. But your online platform for your clinics, it also allows online appointments, emailing, access to this to, to your own health data. Uh, limited access, not exactly the full medical record in its raw form, uh, and some other sort of interesting aspects of online care. What, is, what are some of the newer aspects of online care through your digital platform? Right. So, um, you know, the premise of our practice is to clean slate a, a modern primary care practice and make it much more designed around the patient. And... Uh, brick and mortar and digital, and as we've built a sustainable foundation, we've been extending into more digital um, areas of interest. So one application that we just launched is a mobile application. Um, some people might find this interesting, but you can literally go on and kind of self-triage yourself and determine if you need an antibiotic for, let's say, a urinary tract infection, which I'm sure people might know, be aware of people with those contexts. And uh, through protocols, you know, you can digitally send that to our clinical nurse team that'll kind of review it and then automatically send the prescription. So it's independent of a visit, it's independent of a phone call, it's independent of logging in. You can actually now do this on your mobile environment. So what we've tried to do is design thoughtful services that are completely digital in the context of a physical infrastructure because frankly that's you know where a lot of decisions have to be made given state regulations and prescribing laws and the other things today. Um, but we've protocolized those using technology. So it's a, it's a hybrid model that seems to work for our patients. So you're almost able to self-prescribe an antibiotic if you meet certain criteria through an algorithm that his practice has set up and through some quality control with live nurses checking the data. Um, so I want to come, speaking of a thoughtfully designed application, uh, we're about to come and talk about what Francis has built. But before we do, the, the theme that I think all three of you can definitely speak to in healthcare, and probably everybody in the room, is also this idea of accessing your doctor, the amount of time you have with your doctor these days, the ease of communication with your doctor, basically the communication and interact interaction between the doctor and the patient. This is changing. We're increasingly pressed for time. Um, Francis, you were telling me that some of your colleagues who practice medicine are spending two minutes in a patient visit, not even the five, seven, ten minutes that you sometimes hear about. Um, so you designed a web-based tool that really seemed to address this issue of communication and access time with the doctor. So tell us more about MedSimple. Well, our philosophy was basically was that um, any healthcare system in the world pretty much exists on, on a level of understanding correct treatment to your patients. And that all depends on correct diagnoses. And that depends on communication between patients and physicians. 
and that's the basic foundational level. If you disrupt any one of those, everything on top of it starts falling down. The basic, most um, fundamental part is the communication between patients and doctors. That's, as a doctor, you're trained to basically be a detective, to look for signs and look for symptoms and put everything together. But the patients, when, when they come in, we can't do anything until you come to the room. So until you come to the room and we start engaging with you, we're pretty much useless at that point. But that takes time. Even in a, in, as, as Tom was saying, and, as, and as, as Dave here, the interaction between patient and, and physician is, is very key. But doctors, at least in our system, they're paid by procedure, not by time spent. We're not like a lawyer. And I remember talking to Andrew about this before. When I was in med school, and I saw my, my teacher basically on the phone giving out free medical advice, and, and I would say, do we charge for that? He says, no. I said, so why, why do we not charge for that if a lawyer charges it? And he says, that, that's just not done. So basically, the incentive for a physician to see as many patients as possible is because they've got to keep their practice alive. They can spend one minute or one hour seeing a certain number of patients, or they can spend a lot of time spending, seeing only one patient, and you still need to do one procedure that you only basically get paid for that one procedure. So in order to keep your practice alive, sometimes just, just to survive, you've got to see as many patients per minute, per hour as possible, so you can actually charge for those procedures. And that basically means reduced time per patient, which means that less medical data being gathered, which then means medical errors and incomplete pictures are going to start increasing, which means that you're going to have misdiagnosis, which then feeds into potential lawsuits. Lawsuits feed back into increased premiums for insurance practices, which the next year basically increases the operational cost, which means the doctor has to see more patients again, which then again decreases the amount of time per patient. It feeds upon itself. If you can imagine this, this has been going on for 30 years. So picture this whole cycle going on for 30 years, and you'll kind of have an idea of where we are today because of that system. You can add more hours to the day, but you can try to make this time more efficient. So what we tried to develop was the system where um, it acts very much like a paralegal to a lawyer. So a paralegal basically, when you see a lawyer, you're not going to spend most of your time with a lawyer, the paralegal's going to come in and he's going to basically try to, or she's going to try to get as much information as possible, several days if needed, to compile the data and then give it to the lawyer. You're going to spend maybe 10% of your time with the, with the actual lawyer, the attorney, and he'll make the big decisions. But he's not going to spend seven days with you like the paralegal does. Same thing with this. What we try to do is create the system online where it literally takes your history in lay speak, just drop down menus, buttons that you can press, very little typing in unless you want to add special notes in there. And then it spits out an actual presenting complaint written in doctor speak as if another physician had wrote it out for another physician to read. So we've did tons of tests on this, and we had taken this to the clinics, and time and time again, the, the doctors look at it and say, oh, this is great, who wrote this? And we said, it was done by computer. Mostly because um, when I was practicing, that was my biggest problem, was when I was, when I was out there trying to make these diagnoses or visiting these patients, um, I just didn't have enough time, and I almost got fired from, from my residency for spending too much time with the patient, because I wasn't making enough money for the system. And so I learned very quickly. But I learned it from my parents, my family, my friends. If I wasn't on duty and I did this prehistory and they took it to the physician, they loved it because they had all this information that you could pretty much surmise in 15 seconds instead of spending eight minutes trying to do it. And the system also puts together a series of questions that are customized to that particular visit for that patient. So if you have abdominal pain, it'll say, 
Um, make sure you ask about current medications for your physician. Also, what are symptoms about this abdominal pain that you need to talk about with your physicians? What are next visits that you need to look about? So a very key question is that a physician should know to talk to you about, but he's going to forget because he has 20 patients at least that day to see. So this not just increases the efficiency, but also helps guide the actual visit uh, ahead of time so the physician really spends much more quality time with the patient. No, thanks. thanks for that explanation. And it's called MedSimple for a reason. It's very simply designed, and any, anybody can use it. Uh, and and if, if your doctor can't accept it electronically, you can print out the piece of paper. So it's a combination of online and, and, and offline in that sense. So Dave, you're a co-chair of the Society of Participatory Medicine. And when we think about online care, you've given the example of how when you work with your physician, Dr. Danny Sands, uh, he actually turns his screen so that you're actually seeing what he's typing. And in a sense, that's a very collaborative mm-hmm. type of environment in the doctor's office. And the other aspect of things you've talked a lot about, and that is also a fundamental concept of participatory medicine, is this idea that, well, we see doctors, what, two, three, four times a year, depending if you're sicker, maybe more often. But for the most part, we're at home. We're either looking on Google or we're going to an online community. And self-care is going to become an increasingly important aspect of what people need to be aware about. So talk a little bit about collaborative tools that you've seen doctors use with you and how that's impacted you as a patient, and then a little bit about self-care, what happens in between those visits. What can you as a patient do to continue being engaged? The the interesting thing, I think, is that self-care in reality is most of what we do. You know, I don't know what the exact percentage it is, is, but the well over 90% of all the things people do in life to take care of themselves happen without the doctor being involved. Now that's the bottom of the pyramid. That's not when there's a crisis, you know, or when there's sickness. But you know, the, the reality is self-care is uh, uh, most of what we do. And when you think of family members taking care of each other, you know, parents taking care of kids or elders or whatever, that, that number goes up. Now that's changed a lot with the internet. Because it used to be that the only information we could mostly get, unless we knew somebody who had access to medical books, uh, was from hearsay, from our peers. But now, like Susanna Fox of the Pew Internet Project, uh, her numbers show that, uh, I I think it's like 83% of U.S. adults are online, and 75% of those routinely look for health information on the web. So that multiplies out to like 61% of U.S. adults routinely look for health information. And at a policy meeting in Washington a couple of months ago, I said, you know, in this town, that's called a filibuster-proof majority, and you better get out of the way. You know, it's not, this. it's like this is a genie that we can't get back in the bottle. The problem, though, is, surprise, surprise, there's garbage on the internet. But on the, inner, on the other hand, there is good stuff on the internet that doesn't exist even in medical journals sometimes. So the challenge to all of us is to realize like the world has changed and how do we learn how to use this new resource? It's like we've discovered a new vein of some sort of ore in the ground. How do we filter the good stuff? I met my wife online in 1999 and I tell you, I went through some garbage before I <laughs> found her. <laughs> See. But, but Dave, I'm now, so, so <laughs> she's amused by this. She's here. The uh, for collaborative tools, I don't personally have access to anything other than uh, my hospital's 
uh, medical record that I can view myself. But an essential thing uh, anytime a new topic comes up is uh, sometimes if I've brought something to my primary physician that he hasn't seen, he'll say, I don't know, let's go look. Hmm. And so he'll, he'll go look online he'll, right then. Together. Yeah. Right. So he'll coach me on what to look for on websites. Now that's participatory, that's collaborative, that's partnership. Mm -hmm. It's the exact opposite of people who, uh, you know, the, a common complaint I hear is, oh, this patient came in with three, inch, uh, three inches of garbage printouts from, internet, from the internet. There was uh, an article in Time magazine in, no I think, November of 07, Scott Haig, a doctor, an orthopedist, talked about this nightmare patient who came in, was about to have knee surgery. She had a stack of printouts and she had an out-of-control three-year-old with her. And the, the patient was hostile, and the three-year-old was spilling chocolate milk out of a sippy cup. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't understand why somebody would choose a physician that they have a hostile relationship with. Mm -hmm. You know, and my point was that the way this article, the article was titled, When the Patient is a Googler, and I thought, oi. Yeah. You know, the, this patient would have been a nightmare without Google. Right. right. I said that it should have been titled When the Patient is a Yahoo. <laughs> and, but uh, seriously, I... Th <laughs> Patients, I really believe, ought to have a collaborative relationship with their providers. And it's gone beyond Google. So sure. the tools we see now online that you're using, that you're seeing other very engaged patients using, online communities have mm -hmm. really grown from message boards and from blogs and from asking a random question and having a random, patient, you know, random stranger answer your health question to these really robust communities. And, and say a little bit about kind of the state of online communities today. I mean, do, uh, there are thousands of them. There are thousands of them for every condition that you can there think of. There are thousands of them, and they are not all what I would consider reliable. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the big sore thumb in, uh, in this situation today is the issue of vaccines and autism. It uh, just drives me nuts. And, you know, it's interesting because the Swedish Medical Center in Seattle, this great hospital, just had their 100th anniversary. And fittingly, they opened it, they opened the celebration with a social media conference. And they had a phenomenal pediatrician, doctor, blogger give a speech there, Wendy Sue Swanson. Her Twitter name is, is Seattle Mama Doc, because she's a mother and a doctor. She says, all right, there's crap on the internet, all right? Doctors complain about it, but if we don't jump in and counterbalance it with good content, then who's to blame? So she started a blog where she writes about these topics. Uh, I'm, I don't know if I've yeah. answered your question. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and I think you know, we're, we're definitely seeing, and people in this audience might be familiar with certainly online communities like Patients Like Me mm -hmm. uh, is one, and uh, I encourage you to look at that if you haven't looked at it, but, and another called Cure Together. Yes. And instead of communities where literally might be just random conversations about health, they're actually tracking data, and people are now, some 20,000 patients with a particular condition are, are in a... In a structured way, reporting their symptoms, reporting their medications, and some, some of this data aren't available in clinical trials. So it's an interesting phenomenon that we're seeing online communities progress into. Yeah, I should have mentioned that uh, in my own case, uh, so I joined this ACOR.org kidney cancer patient community, and within 
two hours of posting my first question there, I got answers back saying, look, kidney cancer is an unusual disease. Get yourself to a specialist center who does a lot of cases. All right, the only thing that produces anything like a cure is high-dosage interleukin. It usually doesn't work, but when it does, it can do this. And don't let them give you something else first, because if you get something else first, you uh, may not qualify for interleukin later. Well, as it happens, my hospital is already steering me that way, but most patients who show up there ne have never heard of it from their own local doctors. And it turns out that there's a, there's a significant reason for that. The FDA-approved information for interleukin is 15 years old, and it used to be only effective for 7% of people, now it's effective for 25. And it used to be that 4% of patients who tried it died, now hardly anyone does. Mm. So if you go to the textbooks, literally, you will get misleading information. And it's from the patient community where you get the right stuff. So, so Tom, do you agree with that? And does listening to kind of what your patients might be hearing on ACOR.org or another online community make you nervous? Or how do you coexist in this world where... <laughs> access to information is really being democratized. Well, I, I mean, I think you treat it just like any other information. It's a, it's a data point. I think it's a helpful data point. Um, we aren't threatened by it. I mean, we have a collaborative philosophy, um, so our physician group is very open to that type of discourse, and we budget time to have that type of conversation in our group, but I think most physicians feel threatened by it because it, they're a burden, right? They don't have the time to actually go through all this stuff, and filter out what's good or bad, and frankly, they, they need to look it up themselves. So I think um, people need to be aware of the context of the information, you know, cross, you know, triangulate and verify where these sources are coming from, and at the end of the day, you have to use it, use your own best judgments. No different than the news and interpreting what's really happening out in the world through the journalism process, so. Mm -hmm. and, and Francis, what do you see as a model for sort of physicians practicing in the future? You know, what is your advice to, to doctors? Can, they can't possibly keep up, nobody can possibly, no single person can keep up with the pace of, of knowledge that's now being generated, information that's being disseminated. Uh, How does a doctor practice today and moving forward? Well, I think um, the, the healthcare field is uniquely different than all the other fields out there. You're going to have, like, the business field, even the legal field, especially things like finance, they're very progressive. And they, they, the new technologies come out, you can start pretty much managing your own bank account on your or phone right now, pretty much doing everything you, you could do 10 years ago with a, with a teller. You're going to have a, a much different mentality with healthcare, and, and it took me a while to kind of see some of the dichotomies, but if you think about it, technology and healthcare, they kind of need each other. Actually, they really do need each other, but they're two very separate different mentalities. Healthcare, you are expected to be right 100% of the time, because if you're not, that 1% time is gonna kill somebody, and you will be sued, and you, even though if you save a thousand lives, that one that you messed up on is what you're gonna be remembered for, and you can lose your license for that. Technology side is you can screw up a thousand times, but that one success is what you're gonna be remembered for. So this side here, it pushes you to be very, very innovative. It, takes, it pushes you to take risks. It pushes you to go out there and push the boundaries. This side, you're punished if you do that and you fail. So trying to get this side here to think like this side is not going to happen. But they need each other, though. 
if you guys understand what I'm talking about, then you got these two really amazing people here um, who've somehow managed to integrate that in a practice, not just in a philosophy, but in a way of, of living and also preaching and teaching people. But they're two very, very different mentalities. And so how do I see it progressing? Um, you're going to have to be more like these guys, basically. You're going to have to find that real balance between the cautiousness and the carefulness of healthcare, where you will get sued for anything, and the progressive and innovative risk-taking mentality of technology. That's really a, a really well put point, Francis. And, and just to come back to Tom for a minute, uh, we talked earlier about how you've designed this this practice. Um, you, so Tom's practice, you could you, office sessions last between thirty and forty-five minutes, as opposed to seven minutes. Um, how have you accomplished that? What process changes have you made, apart from some of the technological tools you're offering your patients? What other process changes did you make that allows you to, to practice in this way? All right, so this is where, you know, the group's called One Medical Group. We've kind of re-engineered the doctor's office to be more, frankly, efficient, and we use information technology to kind of better share and process information so we don't need to have as many people running around on the back office side. So the average doctor's, ha doctor's office has three to four support staff per doctor, and that means they need to see a lot of patients to support that overhead. Our overhead's about a third, um, despite redesigning the process. The process redesigns are what's out there, right? This is not uh, rocket science, per se. It's online registration, kind of in advance. You'd think that would be kind of something that's implemented, but the, frankly, the doctor's offices aren't sophisticated enough to implement that. So no forms when I come to your practice? Yeah, so no, it's an asynchronous, no right? You call, you can book online, frankly, you can go on our website right now and register and book your an appointment right online. And you can fill out a medical questionnaire in advance. And so the first time a doctor sees you, he's already seen that and it's a personal greeting. And now there's you know, a good ch solid chunk of time to actually discuss your issues. And that's kind of the key ingredient that's missing out of healthcare is time with an expert professional to interpret the data, to look at all the data that exists out there and then make some decisions that are in your best interest. Um, so, uh, you know, I, there's a thousand little things that we've done. It's hard to kind of characterize any one of them. But the general principles of design are having fewer people do better work and less kind of handing off of work. You know, you, if you've ever gone to the doctor's office, you feel like a cog on an assembly line or kind of a product, right? Somebody comes in, some, somebody leaves, and somebody else comes in. And, you, and so you, it's an assembly line process, and that's antithetical to service, right? It, it should be a job shop process where people come to you and design the care around you, and that's really what we've done, is, is reduce the number of people, kind of put you in the center, and then we come and, and care for your needs. Well, and how much of medical school is devoted to business practices? Yeah, it's like zero. Well, so, I mean, I can't fault the doctor for not knowing something they weren't trained on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this but, is the environment I came from. I was trained as an internist, you know, in Seattle and Boston. I had no idea. Like, you know, I was purely a scientist physician, but I knew that palpably something seemed wrong on the inside, right? You could just feel it, right? <laughs> and uh, so I, I had to get the business training. I, you know, I went to business school. I went two years, you know, everybody was like, you're crazy. You've been through 10 years of school and you're going to do more school. But it opened my eyes to seeing, it's kind of like the matrix. You kind of see how everything works now. And you're like, oh my God, all right, this is how we do it. And you can design with the intent of a physician who wants to care for patients in a sane and rational way, uh, but with the business principles of design so you can actually be thoughtful about it and not kind of blow money out the door because it seemed like the right thing, but it's actually not the right thing. So. To touch on the same point, uh, what both said is absolutely true. 
you have most, most of your mom and pop shops, which are dwindling now for good reason, um, they go in there. They come out, we come out of medical school, and we, we look at the business and we go, oh, there's a grocery store. They can do it. I, I can do this. I went to med school. I, I can totally do this. Within two, three years, you're already in a hole. You're not even making any money back. You're struggling to survive. And it's basic, just like Tom said here, we don't have any business training. I had to go basically go through a lot of business training on the streets myself. So now I'm actually over at UC Berkeley lecturing to MBAs on how to develop their business plan because I had to basically do this on my own, on my own time. It, this is, it, it's, it's amazing to think about it. So what, is, what are we now at a, at a 1.3 or I don't know how many trillions of dollars this business is sucking out of the GDP, but probably about 25%, I think, is where we're at right now. It's probably the biggest business in the world, and most of the people who make decisions have zero experience in running a business. In fact, the people who sit in the middle, the insurance, the payers, which have pure business, have no concern for health. So you basically have people who control the money, who don't care about the bottom line, people who care about the health, trying to run a business they don't know about, and then the government here, who's pretty much too afraid to do anything because they don't know what's going on. So that's your system right now. Right. Dave's about to change all that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, and you've... So, so, I want more money. <laughs> <laughs> we have a few more minutes, and I, I do want to look ahead at some of the patient testimony around meaningful use and mm-hmm. around increased access to our records and around some of the, the hope around what the High Tech uh, Act is hopefully going to help with. So what should people in this audience know about what's happening now with some of the aspects of meaningful use as they apply to just everyday consumers and patients? So the uh, f- first thing, I've, I've got to get something off my chest. I clearly envision a day where we don't sue when th- things go wrong. I gave a talk last May at the Institute for Clinical Systems Improvement, uh, and I, it is an audacious thing we do when we cut somebody open or put chemicals in them with an attempt to fix their body. And I, the more I've come to realize about the work that physicians have to do and the circumstances and everything, I just I see it increasingly as a collaboration. As Tom said, every source of information you've got is subject to being out of date next week or next year or whatever. And if, if I can have a feeling of we're in this together, then if something goes wrong... Now the, and I, I hate it when somebody's career is ruined by a one in a million error. So I'm, that's part of the context. Now, meaningful use, the, uh, the stimulus bill a year and a half ago, February of 2009, included $40 billion to encourage the adoption of electronic medical record systems. And what was written into the bill was that you can't just buy one of these systems and collect the stimulus money. You have to put it to meaningful use. And so then the, you know, lawmakers write the laws, and then the Department of HHS, Health and Human Services, the regulators set about writing the regulations. It took a year and a half. And this July, the final definition of what did we mean by meaningful use was published, and one of the five general categories, there's an enormous tree of things that you have to prove, but one of the five general categories is patient and family engagement. And what that means is, that this was a big moment in history, you know, in, was it 1996 that HIPAA was passed, the Health Insurance Portability Act, that controls, it says, you are allowed to look at your medical record. Until then, the doctor was not required to show you your medical record. So that was one big step, but it can still be like pulling teeth. Now, under this stimulus bill, 
Not all doctors have to participate, but if they want this incentive money, they have to make it possible for you to look online at your medical record. And that's gonna be a great thing, because it means, I've already had an experience doing this where I thought, two weeks after a doctor visit, I thought, wasn't I supposed to check into something? And instead of calling the office, leaving a message, waiting for a call back, I just went online that night and said, oh crap, I was supposed to get this precancerous thing looked at on my forehead. Heaven knows whether I would have done that. There's also, there's the issue of a second set of eyes. Uh, there can be simple mistakes. One of my radiology reports identified me as a 53-year-old woman despite the fact that my name was Richard. But, the, but, the, but the, really, the interesting thing was when I reported that, nothing happened. It took them six months to fix it because they were not accustomed to anybody pointing out a mistake and much less the idea that they should actually make the record accurate. So, 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 so definitely, uh, uh, th this notion of stimulus money encouraging patient access to records is something for us to look forward to. But I think that actually closes down our our panel per se, but we're gonna open up to the audience now with some questions. Sorry. Anyone who spends uh, an appreciable amount of time on eBay knows how important the responses to the sellers and the buyers are. Um, how do you feel about a similar type process for doctors where you can put in a remark about a good experience or a bad experience you've had with a doctor that anyone can see? I think there is a, a lot of those already out there, actually. I, I've, I, you can even find that in Yelp, of all things, right? You can, people are actually talking about clinics and physicians. Um, so whether we like it or not as physicians, we're being graded. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think um, that's, that's inevitable. Even if there wasn't internet, you're going to have people talking about, oh, this is a great doctor, this is a bad doctor. It's all on personal experience. But um, I, I think that's just basically part of the, the landscape right now. Uh, with one caveat, you know, I think it's always great to get feedback and kind of social context on, on how people are. The challenge in healthcare, you know, it, we're, we're rated on Yelp and, you know, we've got lots of positive reviews, but the challenge is they're rating us on what they can see and experience. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you don't actually know what's underneath the hood. And so uh, while you might have a physician who has a, a great personal demeanor, they may actually give, be giving you completely in, you know, inappropriate care. So there is no physician rating community that's really thrived yet. And that would be an interesting thing to ask and create. Meaning, the real way doctors find out who the really good doctors are is they ask their friends, right? They, they're not gonna go on Yelp and find the best neurosurgeon. They're gonna call their buddy up and say, hey, who's the best neurosurgeon? So there is a, a way to grade quality, but it's on the inside circle, and there doesn't exist a community like that. It'd be interesting to see one form, but it, it think, hasn't. Yeah, I know. think that's a trend we're gonna see. So yeah. there's a company here in LA called Insider Pages that's making some small steps toward actually peer-to-peer connections and being able to see who your larger care team is and not mm -hmm. just your one doctor but everybody else and it actually would be remiss not to tell this audience that through uh, open government now there's a, a series of movements through government called open government and health data is being opened up at unprecedented levels data on hospitals that n were never available to the public are now available and controversially data on providers are likely to become available. It's gonna take a lot more, but there will now be ways of going online to just to the government websites and, and other partners of the government that take that data and make it a little bit more user-friendly uh, that now will give even more than just consumer rating information. Yeah, and that's, it's magnificent. I think, I mean, of course, I'm a data geek, but this, this is data that's been in warehouses 
in the DC area, and it's been opened up now for any software developer to get at over the internet. So it's likened to the weather data that your tax, day, tax dollars pay for it, and weather.com and Weather Underground and your local TV station can all get at that data and present it in ways that you like. That's going to be happening. Is it hospital compare, I think, hospital and physician compare? Yeah. yeah. Now, the, the thing that scares me to death about ratings websites is when n is small when you've got like three ratings and who knows what kind of idiot there is mm -hmm. so as tom said before it's a it's a data point that you've got to evaluate and filter mm -hmm. it's refreshing to have a whole conversation here this evening about healthcare and only one comment on the health insurance companies that form a major part of this so I, I personally believe, and I think anybody who's been through anything understands that this is, it's a major element of dealing with your care, is having to manage you know, the bad and good data that comes and goes through the health insurance element of this. I think what my, my question specifically is for the innovators who are approaching this, do you, do you program to that? Do you have to think through what would be ideal given what's kind of a bad system and structure there? If you really look at the root cause of why we have this system today, it's because it's third-party reimbursement. You're not accountable for your dollars. They're being kind of taken out and consumed on your behalf. And, and so, and, and rewarded, uh, rewarding volume over quality, right, or time. Uh, and so what we've tried to do in our group, which is very difficult to do, frankly, the, the you know, economic incentives are very clear. You do more, you get paid more. Uh, is we've restructured our business to realign with what patients want, right, and what physicians want to do for patients, instead of the natural incentives that if we do more, we get more. So it's difficult to do. You need to have a cost reduction to be able to kind of make that transition, but in the absence of that, then you have people escaping the system. Now, there's some positive things about the healthcare reform. They're starting to realign incentives and try to reorganize how uh, providers are paid. So they're a little bit more in alignment with health and wellness and, and you know, kind of the quality systems, but uh, in general, it's a flaw of the system and it's still there. And it's, you know, it's a dominant portion of the healthcare system. Um, basically, the whole thing about the whole insurance, this is a very unique American system, medical system. And you, you do have insurance in other parts of the world, but nowhere near as empowered as they are here. And a lot of this became from the, the, the evolution from like 1970s till now. Um, a lot of it was also the government's idea of well, we're a very capitalistic country, so the business model will drive low cost, high quality care. Not how it happened, actually. So, unfortunately, these guys are very well entrenched now as lobbyists, too. And so they have a huge economical input on the people who make these votes and these decisions about as almost as powerful as the pharmaceutical industry as well, too. And I've consulted with both sides before. Kaiser did a great job of putting all three things together, although they're, they're hugely entrenched in and what they can do, they, their, their whole system is kind of um, um, spar, like basically all, all over the place. They don't really have a whole hierarchy system where you can actually command the whole, whole system together. But they did have the right idea to have everything in-house, so it's a very streamlined process. Um, until Americans, I think, or in this particular people in this country, has an idea and understanding of being able to take a certain responsibility, like I was telling Indu here, in Norway, you're born, and within 30 minutes, they prick your heel, your blood's in the computer, and you're in the national system until you die. Your system, basically any hospital, any clinic in a whole country can access your medical records. The, the government go in there and reach in there and grab it if they need it for any reason, and they're okay with that. 
the Norwegians have no problem with it whatsoever. That would be an outcry here in America if that was to happen. Open the government can get my medical record like that. But there needs to be some sort of intervention. If you want some sort of control with an insurance company, you have to basically be able to give back some of your, I must have these demands. It's, it's a, I think it's a certain set of give and take. And, and there, there are, yeah, I mean, there, there are so many sort of efforts we see in the, in the innovator community in terms of sort of applications and tools that, that are hacking away at this problem in different ways. So I would look at uh, a company called Fair Care, uh, which is actually allowing doctors to bid on, on services, yeah. kind of like an auction. Uh, <laughs> and, and they're actually up and running and, and doing some work in New York, early stages, early days. There's a company called Bill Doctor, which lets you actually negotiate your hospital bill, say, okay, $30,000, how's $7,000? <laughs> Take it or leave it. And it's actually a organized negotiation online. Um, there are also increasingly, from the data angle I mentioned earlier, if you go to healthcare.gov, uh, more and more data are going to be released about insurance companies, previous denials, how many claims, you know, they paid what for. So again, this, it's, it's very controversial and it's very exciting, but there is going to be increased transparency about how insurance companies behave and part of this whole health information exchange and being able to choose your plan more intelligently, I think we're going to see a lot of progress towards that. So from the entrepreneur community to the government, I think there's, it's not a system overhaul, but there are inroads being made. You mentioned Norway, but in, in Germany and France, I know we've got the equivalent of, of Microsoft Vault. What, do you have some lessons that we should be doing? And there's certain data structures that have already been captured and are, and are universally available in, in the health card. Uh, in, that, that's already national, and, and some of the issues you mentioned that we've had trouble with trying to figure out which uh, data to capture uh, obviously has been looked at. Any lessons? Well, okay, I, I went to med school in Europe for about five years, so I had to train underneath that system. Um, I think one of the lessons, I mean, there's definitely a lot of great stuff in the sense that if, if you're willing to be taxed about 43 to 46% anyways, um, but you know that you're always going to basically have a doctor to go to no matter what, that's a good piece of insurance. Um, there is, but from a medical point of view, there's also a drawback to that from a, from a physician's point of view. Uh, for one thing, you're now basically employed by the government, which means that your incentive to do really, really great work is limited only by your, your, your own personal incentive. Many, many doctors are in there just basically doing a government job, and they're doing you know, pretty decent, um, but there's, there's a really different type of drive. The other thing is that it's all done on priority, so you, the data has to basically be pretty accurate. There's a lot of countries out there, short of you dying right there on the steps, like having a heart attack right there, they will give you a six months to see you card. So if you have some sort of infection, they'll say, okay, are you dying? All right, well, then we can see you at this time because there's such a huge line because everyone gets free health care or they paid for it already. Um, so the, the way it's structured does have its flaws, um, but it does take a, a lot of its, its uncertainty from the patients. If you look at America, we probably pay a good number, a good portion of that in insurance companies anyway. So if you look at how much we pay for insurance, um, it's probably approaching what they pay on taxes anyways. My question is about, you know, what do they capture? Because they have a health card that gets diagnoses, previous lab tests, procedures, um, as well as demographic data and, and health risk factors. So I, they've obviously figured out, a way to, to, uh, they figured out a way to capture some finite number of data elements 
that follows you as the individual patient, independent of what the structure of the delivery system is like. They've got a data structure that has been refined now, and it's about 10 years old. So sure. we, 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 I don't think we've learned those lessons, and I'm wondering what lessons there are to learn. I don't know as much about the international systems, but all I can tell you is there's two issues, right? There's the pure data standards issues about interoperability, but there's also data accountability. And when you have a centralized system like we do have in the VA, it's easy to go anywhere within the closed VA system. But because we have such a mosaic of organizations, it's really about the data accountability. And so it's, that's what, where we have the problem, is you don't have a, a mandated organization or monopoly that has all our data, and therefore, you know, if you go outside the system, that data loses its value, but I don't know if that's exactly addressing your issue. Sorry, I misunderstood your question. Another question? Um, Just one other point to the gentleman's question. So there's uh, an interesting company you might look at called Resilient, and uh, they they recognize that data in this country live in very fragmented pools, and rather than thinking of data interoperability, they're developing a permission and identity system around the individual that instead of moving data, it lets you access data. So it's highly complicated and way more techie than I can grasp, but that's a, a direction things are moving rather than actually importing data and then merging it into common vaults. Mm-hmm. It's now letting data be where they are, but having a very complicated permission access structure uh, and almost sort of like virtual aggregation of data. So I, w- I would look at that as an innovative model. I'm just curious because right now I know a lot of Americans, the way they run their health care is, is very reactive. So um, I'm wondering if there's anything that being done to have more of a preventative way of dealing with health care, like maybe looking, you know, your blood pressure was a little high this time, you went to the doctor, are you like doing anything, like running or something, you know? So that way, you know, we kind of avoid the over-medication that I know is kind of, kind of an issue right now. When you get into participatory medicine and start realizing that you're actually responsible for yourself more than you might have thought of. You know, if you think that all the power is out there and they'll do it to me, then you're not inclined to think this way. In my case, this is completely bizarre, but at the age of 59, I became a bike rider for the first time in my adult life. I just got this feeling that I, not that I should, but that I wanted to be more of an active individual. Very odd thing. Now, it turns out that there's, there's tricky, it's, it's tricky because... People will think, okay, I want to take better care of myself, I want to keep track of my weight, my blood pressure, and so on, but it doesn't often translate into action. So how you make it work is this new field of of study. For several years, there's been a place in Boston called the Center for Connected Health that's been studying like... um, remote monitoring blood pressure devices. There's a bathroom scale called, I don't is it pronounced Withings or Wythings? It's got Bluetooth in it, and it records your weight, and if when your Bluetooth phone comes near, it grabs the data and uploads it to the doctor's office. Now, a whole bunch of people, it turns out, cringe at this, which raises the question of, so do you or don't you really want to be engaged in your health? Then the next thing that came up was there was this flood of data coming into doctor's offices, like bam, bam, bam. I imagine if there was an email every time you had a blood pressure reading or weight. So then software got developed where it just watches, and if it goes out of limits, the doctor gets notified. Uh, so it's, it's a new world that's coming along. And I have, the other thing that's happening is as the cost keeps going up, more and more patients and more and more providers are dropping out of the insurance system 
or like going with a high deductible plan. So then all of a sudden every individual cost does come out of the patient's pocket. And then you see people starting to act more responsibly. Obviously, this is, to me, this is an exciting area because area, there's, a, a, there's a new world waking up. There's, um, that actually, the technology that, that David's talking about, it actually applies really well to people with chronic diseases, especially like people yes, like yes. with diabetes. There's actually um, little sensors that they can actually put underneath the skin um, that checks the interstitial fluid, which is very much close to blood fluid as far as sugar levels go. And if it drops down a certain level, it goes to the phone, which basically connects to the servers and the doctors right away knows whether or not they're going to go through hypoglycemia or not. This is so exciting and fascinating. Thank you, all of you. Uh, oh, Jade Singer. Um, you were talking about different entities and how they see things differently and don't interact. And we're seeing time and time again that as technology advances, other systems that have to do with whatever area the technology is applying to have not gotten with it. And there's this big gap. Um, the legal system is one of them. But I'm thinking <clears throat> that the malpractice insurance might be another one. I'm a healthcare provider, and I'm thinking that setting up a system whereby patients are treated without going into the office is a big change. Yeah. And I'm just wondering how the malpractice, well, I think that setting these symptoms up, systems up will decrease malpractice because of the way people are treated and the interaction and the empowerment. I don't know that we have any actuary tables that are going to tell us that, and the insurance companies, I think, would balk. And so I'm wondering if you've had any issues with your malpractice or how you see that proceeding? Yeah, it's interesting. So people would perceive this virtual care is going to put you at higher risk because you haven't physically seen the patient, right? But then when you kind of think about it, well, my, when my friends call me up and ask me for prescription, do I ask them to come over and physically drop by my house? No, it's actually completely appropriate care. So from a care perspective, you actually can deliver a lot virtually. We haven't had a lot of feedback from the malpractice companies about how we actually care for patients. We know we're at lower risk, and it's a function of, frankly, the relationship more than the, the, the medium. So, so we actually establish a very kind of positive relationship and meet the patient's needs, and that's our best risk against malpractice. Um, but uh, hopefully they'll translate to lower rates at some point, but we haven't pursued that. Hi, my name is Hatem. Uh, my question is about the interaction between physicians. It seems there's a lot of buzzwords such as co coordinated care, and uh, there's a lot of physicians that have to come together to deliver health care. Uh, my question is for Tom here, and I know you've been active with Hippocrates. What is being done and what's the future as far as, far as IT and technology coming together to help that process get better? Because we know it's fragmented right now. The unfortunate thing about healthcare specifically is it's constrained by the business models and how it's financed. So until there's an organizational model that is able to fund very expensive labor, collaborating, <laughs> the technology platforms exist today. That's pretty easy. It's just the organizational model that can finance physicians to communicate with each other in a collaborative setting. So, you know, those, are, those exist in very kind of high expensive settings and then in purely capitated settings where the economic incentives are aligned. But um, the technology potentials there, I think the real issue is the organizational models are flawed. So, um, at, at some point, you know, people get smart and figure it out. We've certainly been able to do that, but that's because, uh, you know, our cost structure is different and we're trying to design something that's much more thoughtful. So we're, we are building these collaborative platforms, even with specialists outside of our group, just to kind of do that. But it's, it's challenging, yeah. One thing I can quickly add. Um, the one thing you need to maybe look out 
for in the future just coming in is a certain sense of internationalization of medicine. Um, I know there's tons of procedures doing, being done in India and even in Mexico now. Um, American patients going across the border because of really cheap prices. But um, of course, a lot of insurance companies would say, well, we're not going to pay for that because it's not a licensed physician. So what a lot of physicians have learned to do, a few of them actually, have gone over there, have the American license, hire a bunch of local physicians, but they stamp everything themselves. Radiology does this a lot, so they hire a whole bunch of uh, local radiologists to review tons and tons of pictures, and they approve it as the American licensed physician, and then all the data gets sent back to, to America. So as you can see a lot, of, especially with this data processing going through and having all of this digitized, a lot more of that's gonna be going through um, this whole over-the-border type of medicine practice. Yeah, I just... Uh I don't know how many people have heard of the term fee for service, but it's our it's our medical system. The uh, Paul Grundy, the uh, the director of worldwide healthcare for IBM, described it to me recently. Is imagine if a bank only made money every time you face a teller, yeah. right? Because that's the way our healthcare system is. Imagine how often you'd be required to go face a teller to do something. And the thing that bothers me about this is that I mean I have a deep compassion and appreciation for great physicians. I was saved by them. Now, a friend of mine, Monique Doyle Spencer, wrote a magnificent book about living with, with breast cancer called The Courage Muscle. And after she thought she was all better, she visited her primary and this was a couple of years ago, and he said, I'd like you to go get an MRI. Uh, and she said, well, all right, if you want to. And it turns out there were very early spine metastases returning. There was no outward indication. And she said, how did you know? And he said, you just didn't seem like yourself. You know, and that's the art of medicine. No robot, no computer will ever replace that. And I want the people who've gone through the years and years of training to learn how to do that and become great at so many areas of medicine to have a good life. You know, and be satisfied. I want business systems that support them. I think what these guys are doing is phenomenal. Uh, and also on top of that, to get back to our topic, which is online healthcare, you know, the, uh, one of the doctors in my hospital said to the House Ways and Means Committee in 2004 that he said, I want to draw attention to the most underutilized resource in health information, which is the patient. And when your time comes, you'll want to get engaged and be part of that.